Daniel so much. Thank you, Lord. There's something about listening to your own son sing. <laughs> kind of makes you go, thank you, God. You know, you walk with them through all the drama of childhood and teenagerhood and you come into the house of God and See him sing a song. And it could be so many other places in life right now. And they're with you in church. And you go, yeah, that's what I do. I go, ha ha, thank you, God. Yeah. Got to celebrate every little thing you can, you know. Something wonderful about recognizing the little things that God is doing especially when we're in the seasons of waiting for big things. It can really burn out if all you recognize is the big things. So it seemed to be spread out a bit more. But the Lord just has this way of sneaking up and saying hello, giving us these little affirmations and reminding us, you know, Check out this young lady here. Imagine. Yeah. Well, I guess we don't have to imagine. <laughs> imagine her when she's 20. Growing up in the house of the Lord. Yeah. And just fruitful. Yeah. Such a good thing. The Lord is so glad you're here. He really is, because there's so many places you could be tonight, so many other things you could be doing, and you've chosen Him. And one of the important things about remembering that is we often focus on our negatives. Anybody ever kind of get stuck looking at your negative qualities? Because we usually all know our negative qualities, you know? things we aren't doing, not all the time, but we get reminded frequently. There's really two sides of, of lots of people. This part of us that has a list of things we know about ourselves that are negative, and we 
kind of are in touch with those. And then this whole other area called blind spots. Anybody have a blind spot, you know? I still remember the day I realized I was bald. <laughs> you know, it was like trauma. I was 25 years old, had been involved, active in my church, and we had this church potluck. And I mean, I had long hair for years and, you know, a little beard and all that thing. And you know, it was blonde and 70s and 80s kind of generation. And then here I am now, 25, and, and had gone to a church potluck. And they had, you know, it's 150 people or so, and there's circles of chairs. And you grab your food, and you sit with people, and you talk to strangers. And it's about getting to know the people in your church and that kind of thing. And, and so they had a picture board up. In the fella in the hallway after like the next week of all the photographs and you know back in the days of the Polaroid camera where you take it and it comes out and immediately you got it and so they whipped up this poster board real fast and it's still you know so it's really cool and we got all these pictures everywhere and and I'm looking at the whole celebration and. Going, oh, I remember going around and talking to that group, and, and I remember talking to that group, and, and then I see this one circle of people, and I'm like, I remember talking to that group, and, and all I'm seeing is, you know, this person, and this person, and this person, and this person, and then I see this one person from the back, and I'm like, who was that? I don't remember that guy being there. I sat and I talked to those people for a long time. Who? 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 Ooh. You know, the moment that who becomes ooh, you know, ooh, I think I know who that person is. I have a hoodie like that guy's wearing. And, and you realize the glory has departed. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, it's just you. Come on. Give me <laughs> Where, come on, I got, I got some friends in this room, you know, men of understanding, you know. But you, you just, you, who am I? A moment of perplexity and concern. Because you suddenly become aware things about yourself that you weren't aware of. Is, it, is that a hard thing for anybody besides me? Yeah. Facing things about you that you weren't aware of. Even though you, I thought I knew what I looked like. I had a pretty good opinion of what I looked like and then suddenly... It's gone in one moment. No. That's not how other people see you. Yeah. Turn to someone and say, do you realize how other people see you? Turn to somebody and say, he's at it already. <laughs> yeah, just how 
other people see us. I, I was thinking during worship about Peter. Uh, Daniel's first song was really this incredible statement of consecration to the Lord. Ah, I'm yours, everything, it's all yours. And as he was singing, this whole theme was arising in my heart. The gap between the words and the truth. Did anybody sing that with a whole heart? Yeah, I, I, those are those words. They're appealing, and they're inviting, and the music draws me in. And I say, "I'm all yours." Am I the only one who was singing tonight on that one? Do you get? I mean, I don't know that I have to preach much more to have already made the point. I think we might actually be catching on early that many times the words out of our mouth to the Lord, our view of ourselves is actually seriously flawed. Seriously flawed. It's, there's holes in it. There's gaps in it. And, and we come into a worship so, setting, and, and I think that's possibly what Jesus meant when he said, you worship me with your lips. But your heart, there's a gap. It's far from me. It's not where you think it is when you sing a romantic worship song, when you sing an inspiring worship song. And Jesus said in John chapter 4, there is a time coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship in spirit. We like that side, that side. Oh, I worshiped in spirit tonight. But there's a second part of that passage. It says, and truth. And that's the problem. Because we love the spirit part. But the truth is painful. For most believers, probably all believers, there is a gap called the absence of self-awareness. Yeah. Jesus spoke to Peter and said, you know, I'm going to be going away soon. I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And Peter's like, and, and Jesus says, he says, everybody is going to leave me. Everybody's going to bail out. I'm going to be alone. And Peter, anybody find yourself being like Peter from time to time? Peter had really good qualities and really not so good qualities. Yeah. I'm talking about me, and I'm talking about you. All you have to do to discover my not so good qualities is have a conversation with my wife. She is the Holy Spirit when it comes to the revelation of Dan. You know, she sees the truth. But Peter says, even if everybody else leaves you, 
I won't. Yeah. It's a, it's, what a profound statement. Even if everybody else leaves you, I'm not going anywhere. I'm fully yours. I'm fully yours. I'm fully yours. I'm not going anywhere. Jesus. I'll be with you here till the end. Turn to your neighbor and say, Peter didn't see himself. You see, it's not wrong to think, to sing the songs. It's wrong to sing them thinking they're true when we know they're not. And so there's a transaction that needs to happen in our hearts when we're faced with words that reveal truth about me. And it's owning it as a heart level, even as I sing it as a desire. Singing something as a desire rather than singing it as a statement of fact is the difference between truth and self-deception. Do, do you, get, you get what I'm saying? And, and so there are lots of songs that I sing saying, Lord, I want this to be true, but I see holes in my garments. I see the gaps. And so, Lord, here I am. It's, turn to somebody and say, that's called humility. But it says, humble yourself before the Lord, and in the right way, he will lift you up. In the right time, he will lift you up. And that's what we're to bring. Part of worship is a lowering of us, not just a lifting up of him. That's real worship, you see. Many people have fallen into a, let's lift Jesus higher which is great, but at the expense of let's bring ourselves lower and come face to face with our need for grace and transformation. Turn to somebody and say, you need grace and transformation. You need grace and transformation. No matter how long you've been at this, I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I need grace and transformation. Right before the meeting, our hostess brings me a big meal and then a Klondike bar. <laughs> and I'm like, what are you thinking? No, she can't. No. You know why I can't say that? I had a choice. I had a choice. Yeah. You have a choice. Everything that we live in is a choice. Yeah. You're not a prisoner, you're not a victim. Yeah. You have a choice. The blood of Christ has purchased all that we need for life and godliness. It's been made available to us, but 
to receive it. To receive real change, we have to first face real truth about ourselves. In every area where we hold on to a, a false image of who we are is an area we don't receive the grace of God. Because my pride, my self-denial blocks it, prevents God's real transforming power to make me the person that I pretended or thought that I am. But it's as we lower ourselves and humble ourselves and, and come saying, Lord, I know I'm not rejected because of these things, but I want to remove the self-inflating opinion of myself and recognize my need, that I need you to do this in me so that I can be what I see. Because I see who I can be with God's presence. I see who I can be with the word of God alive in me. But the process can be painful. The process can be prolonged because, you know, there are things that I have to unlearn to become the person I want to be. There are reflex responses of mind, of heart, of relationship. There are certain people that just provoke a certain reaction out of me. Is that anybody? Anybody just said anything? The problem is, it's not their fault. They're just being them. My reaction to them is my responsibility. And it's a revelation of what needs to grow in me and change in me that I say, okay, Lord, I could have done that differently. Forgive me, Lord. Help me. Help me to see it before it's a mess I have to clean up. God will forgive us for making messes, but maturity is moving from constantly cleaning up messes to seeing it before the failure and having this, the reliance on the Spirit to not go down the path. That's self-awareness. When I'm in these situations, this is what often happens. Therefore, I am going to be aware. I'm going to be alert to my human tendencies and recognize the snare before I fall into it. I'm going to recognize the pattern before I stumble into it. Is, it, is this speaking anybody's language tonight? You see, God wants us to be mature. This is what it is to be mature. It's to be consistent in our character, consistent in our emotions, consistent in our values, consistent in how we respond to people, to the Lord, to temptation. Those three things, people, the Lord, and temptation. God's desire for us 
is not that we have good days and bad days. It's that we have good days and better days. There's still dimensions of better and and worse, but it's it's like living above the water and the measurement is now how far above the water each day, not above the water, below the water, above the water, below the water, above the water, below the water. That's what maturity looks like. Immaturity looks like above the water, below the water, up the you can always tell when people's hair is wet every other day that they're just unstable. Yeah. But Peter, back to Peter. Peter's like, I'll never leave you. You know what Jesus says? That's right. That's what he says. Ha, 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 Peter, you're a joke. <laughs> Peter, you think you know. He just goes, wrong answer. That's who you think you are, Peter. That's the fantasy you have created in your own mind about the level of your maturity and commitment. Turn to somebody and say, that's a picture of the 21st century church. In America, at least. Many, many, many American Christians would fall away if faced with what a Chinese or North Korean Christian is faced with every day. They would just dissolve in excuses, self-pity, and denial of Christ. Yeah. Just ask Peter. Yeah. Peter isn't the only one who ran away. They all ran away. Peter's just the only one who made a a declaration that he was greater than all the others and wouldn't crack under pressure. They all ran away. So the problem that God was exposing, that Peter, that Jesus was exposing, wasn't the, the issue of running away. He said, they're all going to do it. So that's not the problem. Many people looked at the story and missed the real issue. The real issue is blindness. I am this and they are that. I'm better than they are. I will not be that way. You're blind. Peter, you're blind. You don't see the truth about yourself. And that's why Jesus allows the pressure. He says, all right, that's what you think. Let's crank it up a few notches. You are going to deny me three times in the next 24 hours. Wow. You made your statement of truth. I'm making my statement of truth. We'll see who sees who more clearly. Turn to someone and say, Jesus sees you clearer then you see yourself. With love. He never stopped loving Peter. His conviction that Peter would be the vessel upon which he could build his church was not altered 
by the fact that he knew the truth about Peter. You know why I know that? It's because he already knew who Peter was before he gave the prophetic word. If you received a prophetic word from me in visits past or you get one tonight, it has nothing to do with how mature you are. It's not a statement of your greatness. It's not a statement of, wow, I'm really gifted. It's a statement of mercy. It's a statement of God's ability to make the rocks cry out. He said, if you don't praise me, I'll get some rocks. I can do it with anything. It's just that God is good, not that you are great. You see, and so often we get into these prophetic things and it's like, it's the puff, you know, puff zone. Let's call it that. It's the inflatable me zone, you know. Stay puff marshmallow man or the Michelin tire guy. That guy's got a lot of prophetic words. The Michelin tire guy is big and every one of those represents a word that made him bigger and bigger in his own mind. And then the Holy Spirit just comes along. And all he is is the Michelin flat tire man. That's what truth does. It turns the Michelin man into the Michelin flat tire man. You see see what I'm saying? You can humble yourself. For in his mercy, he will help you. Turn to your neighbor and say, what's that hissing sound? It's the hiss of truth. I heard somebody say, when you put on the armor of God, don't do anything but stand. Because the moment that you move, you'll give yourself away. Because the armor of God makes you look all big and bad. And then you trip over the armor because you don't know how to wear it. And you just clank on the ground. And and he goes, oh, It's you. I thought it was Jesus for a minute there. Or we can say, just be quiet. Don't say a word. Because the moment you say something, you know, the enemy will know. Because we don't say the things Jesus would say. Turn to someone and say, does your mouth give you away? Somebody's thinking, he's not nice. No, I'm honest. I'm just honest. My goal isn't to be nice. My goal is to be, to act nice while I'm being honest. But Jesus, I mean, if Jesus was here, he wouldn't say it nearly as nice as I am. Just read the Bible. Jesus was rough. Get behind me, Satan. What? My name's Peter. Not today. That's not who's talking right now. 
and say, who's talking? See, I'm having a lot of fun tonight because it's not like there's groups of young adults. I'm just nailing married couples. I mean, you have the only person near you is your spouse, and a lot of you are really uncomfortable when I'm putting you, asking you to say stuff. It's like your neck is broke, you know. I can never say that to him. I could never. That's so stupid. You think I'm prophetic. I'm just a good observer. I put you in traps with what I say. I realize that you can't say it. And it's like, okay, busted. Yeah, just self-revelation. Yeah. I, I might be a little prophetic. I mean, just, but I am a good observer too, you know. Because the wonderful thing about the human race is the Bible says we're all the same. There is nobody that is tempted differently than everybody else. We all have the same struggles. If you're married, you got the same baggage. <laughs> Turn to somebody and say, hey, that's my suitcase. <laughs> you know what I mean? You be, any travelers here? Yeah. Are we having fun yet? See, I believe that you can be incredibly convicted, learn a few things, and have fun all at the same time. I still remember a guy named James Gall, not Wall, James Gall, throwing a pitcher of water on the audience. And I was like, okay, that's one way to do it. I only have a bottle. I don't have a pitcher. It would come. The only reason I didn't is the lid is, I mean, the, the, the pitcher gets more volume. You know, it get, gets better coverage, you know. But Jesus says, Peter, you're not who you think you are. Well, sure I am, Lord. Wait and see. The night goes on. Peter denies him once, denies him twice, denies him three times. And at that moment, it says, Jesus looked at him. And what's so powerful, that look, Jesus didn't have to say anything else. He said it. And there, there have been times when the Lord is trying to talk to us through the word, through people, through friends, through our spouse. The Lord's trying to talk to us and open our eyes to the real us. And we can't hear, we can't see. We're like, Peter, not me. I'm a holy dude. You know, I got it. I've been at this for a long time. Yeah, I believe everything you just said. Yeah, and I got it. And then when we screw up publicly, like Peter did, all it takes is one look right from Jesus. Yeah. And suddenly, what he was trying to tell me. 
turn to your neighbor and say, would you rather learn privately or in front of an audience? I still remember. I had taken the church down in Sturbridge, Mass. I was going to be the senior pastor. We started these Thursday night Bible schools. And, and it, it's a big building, like 150-foot-long building, I think it was. No, 120, 60 by 120, I think. And the whole upper level was sanctuary and then a little foyer up there. And so from the, from the platform, it's a long way to the back. And, and it was very similar to your thing, mine, except for the stairs straight down. It went straight out. And there's a bathroom and then another bathroom and then my office. And... So the sanctuary is about 100 feet long or so, or maybe 90 feet long. And we're up at the front, and there's a small group, and I've got my lapel mic on, and we take a break. You know, it's a two-hour teaching time, and so we take a break and let people stretch, and I go to use the restroom, and, and I go in the restroom, and I hear footsteps running like an elephant stampede down the hall, the thing and I can hear it getting closer and I'm like what is going on out there and then I hear my secretary yelling Pastor Dan your microphone is on Couldn't you just talk to me about humility? And he's like, well, I tried. Turn to somebody and say, do you know what you've been missing? Really, God tries to protect us. He tries to intervene. Tries to help us in private, in the secret place. But some of us, we won't even go into the secret place. We're too busy. We're too important, too distracted to actually sit down and stop everything Give God undivided attention. The law needs money. The house needs payment. The car needs to wash. The dishes. This. We have turn to somebody and say, God's more important than your list. God's not asking you to be religious. He's asking you to be real. Some of us, we do all the right things publicly and none of the right things privately. And the end result is what we are. Is a there, When I look out this back window, there is a beautiful SUV, black, cool rims, great windows, everything. Looks fairly new, 2019. Now, imagine that with no engine and no seats. 
There's a lot of Christians like that. Everything's right on the outside. People look at them and covet it. But if they got a chance to open the hood, they'd go, it's empty. They worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You'll discover where your heart is if you look at two things. Two things. Your schedule and your checkbook. Does anybody want to know why God asks for tithes and offerings? Does anybody want to know the primary reason? There's one primary reason. It's very simple, but if you miss it, you constantly give with the wrong motive, with the wrong understanding. And so you don't get the benefit. You end up in resentment and frustration and excuses. He says this, where your treasure is, your heart is. So he says, I want you to take the first of all your income and a portion beyond that, your tithes and your offerings. That's a difference. Your tithe is the 10% that already belongs to God. The, 10 per, the, the money, the offerings beyond the tithe are that part that costs you something. And God wants both. That's why he puts you in situations where he says, tithe to the house of God, and then see that poor person, see that need, see that ministry. And he opens your eyes to additional need because he wants to cause your heart to be connected to the things most important to him. It's about your heart. And people think it's about greed, it's about this, it's about that, it's about... We have all these other explanations than the right one. See, the tithe isn't you giving something back to God that belongs to you. The tithe is like paying rent on a house that somebody else owns. Turn to somebody and say, you don't own the house. You don't own anything. The Bible says, the gold and the silver are mine, says the Lord. I've given you the privilege of stewardship. Some of you more than others, but we're all stewards. And until you understand that, you will always relate to money wrong. You won't give when God says give because it's yours, not his. But if it really belongs to God and all I am is a manager, when God talks to me about it, it's okay, I'm just your man. I'm just, I'm just managing for you, so sure. Here, wherever you want it, Lord. When you go to work for somebody else, you don't tell them where to spend the money. You, they tell you as the accountant, pay this check. You say, yes, sir. I'm just the company's bookkeeper. That's what a steward is. It doesn't belong to you. All of these things are a test and a goal of aligning your heart with God. Because the true worshiper will worship in 
spirit and truth. That's why he rebuked the Pharisees who made a show of their offering because they were more focused on being seen than being real. And then he praises the widow who just put in a penny and said, you know why? Her offering is of more value than all those rich people that put something in. It's because what she gave actually cost her something. If your giving does not affect your lifestyle, you don't really understand what God's after yet. Every now and then, just for the sake of growing, ask God, how much should I give where so that I feel the pinch? So that I actually have to rely on you this week instead of just see the numbers a little lower. At what point does it affect my life? And that's what this woman got a hold of. She was so committed to God. She says, you know what she's saying? says, I don't have anything anyhow, so I'm giving God everything because that's the only chance of survival I have is belonging to God. So I'm going to take my penny and I'm going to place my life in the hands of God. That's what she's doing. She's saying, it's all yours anyhow. My survival isn't going to come from that half a penny. My survival is going to come from the mercy and grace of God providing and meeting my needs. See, so many of us, we have wrong foundations that God is trying to align so that he can bless the house of God and bless us and bless our sphere of influence. God is seeking to alter how we relate to life itself. That we see the truth about ourselves, that we relate rightly to the words out of our mouths, that we relate rightly to what he's entrusted us with, not in fear, but simply, you said it, okay? At what point do we make it God's responsibility to provide if we do what he's told us to do? Many people hover on the edge of obedience because they can't quite obey enough to actually make it God's problem, not theirs. Where we test him by our obedience where we discover the reality that because I said yes God is actually obligated because of his word to take care of me I'm in control if we never cross the threshold of obedience at that level that, that places us in the hands of God That one person who needs healing, who reaches the point of finally saying, you know what, the doctors aren't helping. I'm done with doctors. I'm not teaching that as everyone needs to do that. But there is that one person. Maybe not even here tonight, but there's that one person that comes to the place where they realize I've tried all these other means. Maybe it's that teenager or that son or daughter that's 
in rebellion and not actually living according to God's ways, then I finally have to make them God's responsibility. I, I have a teenager. I have two. And there was a moment when the older one reached 13 years of age where the audible whisper of God internally said, from now on, I am his father. In other words, he reached the age of accountability and there was a transfer of responsibility. From that moment on, I'm still investing in him, but ultimately, he's God's responsibility. The choice of right and wrong, the knowledge, and more and more from that point on, I have taken my hands off and provoked him to think and learn rather than me being the source of all of his answers. And we've had some challenges, my wife and I, to reach that point, and we're not always successful at it, but we still wrestle to, all right, son, that $1,000 that you just wasted on T-shirts and Cokes and energy drinks and whatever you spent it on that was your graduation money that everybody gave you for graduation this year. I was really hoping you were going to take that to college so that when you wanted to do something with your new friends, you had some money to do it. But, dude, it's your problem. Don't look at me for more money. what point do I stop being God and let God be God? It's hard with my wife. I'll go there. She's going to kill me. No, I won't make decisions. I'm not going to make decisions based on whether my wife will kill me or not. I'm going to make decisions based on whether it's beneficial to the conversation. Because we're talking. We're having a dialogue whether you realize it or not. You're giving me all kinds of feedback. And so, at what point do I put something in the hands of God? See, Daniel, the one who just sang when he was 14, he got leukemia. And I was on the other side of the world in Sri Lanka the day they found out. And I get a Zoom call in Sri Lanka right after doing a leader's retreat. I walk out of the retreat center. There's Tammy on the Zoom crying. And Daniel's got leukemia. And I'm like, okay, I'll be on the next plane home. But in between, she's like, you have to tell him. So now I'm on the... Whatever Facebook Messenger, whatever video chat, whatever it is, looking at my son, 12 hours of flying time of, of time zones away, laying in a hospital bed, and I have to look him in the eyes across that screen and say, Son, you have leukemia. He starts crying, Am I going to die, Dad? And I just declared over him, No. You are not going to die. We are going to beat this thing because God is good. And I just made that declaration. And then I went and prayed and prayed and prayed until I heard from God. And God started giving me visions 
about his life after leukemia. He was 6'2 at the time, and I had a vision of him 6'5 and a little heavier, kind of like he is right now, you know, and I was like, okay, saw that, knew that wasn't, that was, I knew it was post-leukemia, had a dream about his marriage and his kids, and I'm like, okay, I've heard, where does faith come from? Hearing. And I would bet, I've never done this study, but I bet when it says hearing the word of God, the, the Greek for word is probably rhema, not logos. Because the letter kills, the logos kills. The logos without the spirit, without revelation. The information without revelation leads you to no destination. How's that? You can Facebook it. But now I had faith because God has spoken. And so the prophecy that I gave him first out of hope, I flew home and gave him out of faith. And from that moment on, I lived differently with my family and I put my son in God's hands because I'd heard. I didn't have to be God anymore. Until I heard from God, I was being God. I think it's gonna, you're gonna live, son. I'm, but now I'm not speaking from that place because I have the word, I have the promise. And so I relate differently Hold your family to the word of God. Don't make excuses for them to live apart from God. Call them higher. And, and I don't look for perfection in their behavior. I look for authentic, authenticness in their response, sincerity in their response. If they're reaching for God, if they're reaching for freedom from their struggles, that's when I stand with them and say, yes, let's fight together. Let's pray together. Let's look at the word together. I check in and I grow with them. But when they're making excuses for their behavior, when they're not looking at scripture as the model of how they should live and they're just avoiding growing up. Anybody have teenagers besides me? Maybe you're a little beyond that or a little before that, depending on there's kind of two gaps here. And I know, but mine are they're teenagers and and there's days and it's like, are you even trying? Yeah. That's when I light a fire. That's when I start to confront. But I don't comfort them in their sin. When my son is spouting rubbish, and he can sing really nice, but he can also spout rubbish. Anybody know anybody who can spout rubbish? Okay, that's coming right out of YouTube when I'm hearing you talk right now. That's, I would say crap, but were we allowed to say that here? Too late, I just was <laughs> testing here. I would say that's, 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 Think of any applicable initials that you want <laughs> that would be replacements. That's the only replacement theology I believe in. <laughs> That's 
not going to cover that. I'm not going to pretend that's okay. You're free to do whatever you want, but I'm not going to support you in that. I'm not going to agree with that thinking, with that behavior, because you know, I, I've told God, Daniel since he was, both of my boys, since they were like babies, I said, God gave me four roles in your life, four responsibilities. I am responsible to protect you as a parent until they reach their own adult life. I'm responsible to protect them, provide for them, train them, and give them love for God. And so the training is to train them to know God's ways and to live in obedience to his word. And so when I see them moving in a different direction, I have 20 years or 18 years or 15 years of reference points to go back and say, Daniel, what's my four jobs? And I've reminded them consistently for their entire lives, what are my four jobs in your life? I am not a representative of the Lee family. I am a representative of God in your life. And he put me in your life to accomplish these four things. I want you to know that you are loved. I want you to be secure in love. I want you to be trained in the ways of God and the ways of living in this earth. I want you to be provided for and I want you to be protected from evil until you have the wisdom to protect yourself. But the older they get, the more I let go. One of the scary moments was giving him car keys. Say, have fun within limits. Have fun. Dad, have fun. And I let him go. And at that moment, he's God's problem because I'm not in the car. Turn to somebody and say, are you still trying to hold on to the keys. You know what? I reached a point in my mind where I had to say, God, I don't want him to die, but it's not on me if he does. It's on you. And I don't say that with an anger and a threatening. It's that he belongs to God because I belong to I'm not going to be able to follow my son to college to make sure he's okay. I'm sorry, I can't do it. I can't live with that pressure in my own life. My 15-year-old, I got three more years. I'm counting. Yeah, like, come on, God, get him there. Get him, get him across that line. When I, when I first, I wanted to be married. Anybody here really long to be married for the years before you got married? I, I was like pathetically desperate, let's put it that way. From 19 to 28, I was like uh, an addict withdrawing and long, you know, seeing other people with heroin and not getting any. It's kind of what it felt like, you know, in my weakness. And it was an idol that had to be confronted my want and desire for a wife. And it wasn't a physical thing. It was a hole in my social heart. 
a loneliness because I didn't know how to have healthy relationships with other adult people. And I thought that if someone would actually commit to me, I wouldn't feel this void anymore. Because I needed healed. I needed health. But I met Tammy in my dream three years before I met her. And then I met her in Mexico and told her after five days, I think you're the one. She says, I think we should just be friends. <laughs> and I said, I don't need any more friends. I need a wife. And the good news for all of us is six months later, she agreed I was right. We just didn't talk for those six months. But God started giving her dreams and confirming it and Basically, we started dating already knowing that God had supernaturally put us together. So we get engaged, we get married. We, within nine months, God sends us to New England to be past associate pastors in New Haven, Connecticut, or West Haven. And we had had a four-bedroom house in Kansas City where we lived and put it all in storage and we were living in a furnished one-bedroom apartment with all our stuff rotting in storage. You know, we're in this tiny little place. And, and uh, it's just like an in-law's apartment in somebody else's house kind of small thing, you know. And, and we're in there, and one night we're sleeping. And just to tell you how pathetic it is, anybody ever see the Dick Van Dyke show back in the day? It was a lot like that. We had twin beds. Newlyweds with two twin beds, you know. And it's like, okay, uh, Lord, you know how to kill an idol, don't you? <laughs> yeah, the Lord knows how to kill an idol. So here we, I know my, but we didn't. I don't know why. We never thought of putting them together. I think we were, I think, I think we were afraid to move the furniture in this rental house, you know. I don't know what it was. <laughs> we didn't. We never put them together. We were so naive. I mean, this is 30 years ago, so we were dumb. That's all I can say. We didn't have the spirit of wisdom and revelation yet. You know? So anyhow, here we are. We're in this place. And I have this dream in the night. And the Lord speaks audibly in this dream. And he says this. Very soon, I am going to call Tammy home. It was audible. I'm laying in bed awake with that sentence, and I know it's the Lord. And I'm gripped with grief because it was so clear and so direct. And I'm like, God, I've waited all this time, and we've been married eight or nine months, ten months, and, and now you're going to take her away. I'm 29, I've waited all my life for this moment. You give me a wife, and then nine months later, you're going to call her home? And I'm wrestling, and I come to a point of surrender. Turn to somebody and say, have you surrendered your idol yet? Yeah, yeah. can be your wife, your kids, your job. Your role in the church. We can make anything our idol. Whatever controls our affections in an unhealthy way can become an idol. Yeah. And it's controlling. And so I hear this sentence 
very soon, I'm going to take the family home. And I finally reached the point of giving her back to God. I mean, and it was like being at a funeral. I am weeping and, gro- and moaning as if she is physically dead. And I put her back. I mean, I understand what Abraham felt, giving Isaac back to God. I give her back to God. And I say, she's yours, Lord. And I grab a hold of that scripture. I think it's either Job or David. I think Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I said, Lord, I trust you. I am yours. She is yours. If that's your best, here was the prayer. Lord, if that is your best for her, I let go. Wasn't about, is that your best for me? It was, Lord, if that's your best for her to take her home, then 50 years with me must be a real harsh prison sentence, you know. No, just just that I'd throw that in there. But it's it's harsh, seemingly. But I go through the grief and I lay her in the altar and I give her back to the Lord and for days I'm living waiting for the news. She died in a car wreck. Suddenly she has cancer. I, I don't know what it is. I just know he said she's going home. And what's profound is you heard it exactly like I heard it. The moment I said it, we all heard it the same way, basically. So that's how common this reality is. That language that God chooses. Well, story goes on, and a few days later, about a week, week and a half, she comes to me, and she's real serious, and she's almost emotional, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, no. She says, Dan, I need to talk to you. I need to tell you something. I need to, I can't remember whether she said tell you or ask you, but I, I need to talk to you. And I'm thinking, oh, she's about to tell me she's got some kind of disease, and I've got three weeks to live or whatever. I'm ready. Because I've given her to God and I've had that sentence. And here's what she says. It changed my life. She says, Dan, I really feel like the Lord is calling me home to visit my parents. (laughs) Would you be okay with that? I'm like, absolutely, Joe. Yeah. See, Jeremiah said this. He said, Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. See, Jesus, in that experience, did not tell a lie. He did not violate his own integrity and character. He said something 100% true that he also 100% knew I would misinterpret. So that this idol could be dislodged from my heart. Turn to someone and say, what will it take for you to surrender your idols? Your wife, your family, 
your kids, your grandkids, your job, your role in the church. Whatever controls your emotions, your desires, your choices, whatever provokes a reaction that is greater than your commitment to living God's way for God's glory is an idol. People do it for money all the time. People do it for sex. People do it for all kinds of things. For me, it was my wife. The emotional bond that had become a bondage. Yeah. See, I'm actually getting a PhD in psychology, and I didn't know any of this. Or I, mean, I didn't know any psychology when I learned this stuff. Because God is a better teacher than any university. Yeah. And the truth will set you free. But, but can you hear the truth? Can you hear the truth? Can you move beyond what Peter couldn't move beyond? Until he was traumatized. Peter had to go through trauma to see the truth. My encounter with the Lord was trauma. That had I been able to just see myself, read the word and learn truth from the word and allow God to confront these things some other way, he would not have had to go to such dramatic extremes to open my eyes to me. What will it take to open our eyes? The good news is God is just as committed to you and to me as he was to Peter. Yeah. Just as committed. Peter sees himself and is ashamed and runs and hides, runs away, and he falls into a woe is me, kind of let's go fishing and avoid our problems kind of reaction. He has no idea what's coming. He's given up. He's so exposed. It happens in front of everybody. I don't even know him. And he curses. Wow. His uncontrollable emotions and his vehement speech spouting lies. He's gone from one lie to another. The lie of self-deception to the lie of denying Christ. He's moving from one lie to the next. And then finally the trauma catches up to his heart. Catches up to his heart. And he's able to be confronted. See, God doesn't 
avoid the confrontation. It just breaks him down low enough that he'll finally hear. Peter still has a confrontation. First of all, with the truth, his eyes are open. And then with mercy and humility. All right, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? That's what he says to him. Do you love me more than these? Now, when you hear that, what I want you to picture in that is whatever idol came to mind as I was telling my story, as I've been talking tonight, what's the idol that came to mind? And let Jesus come and ask you that question. Do you love me more than these? Your idol. It's fill-in-the-blank truth night. Do you love me more than this thing that you've been holding on to? The idea of marriage, the idea of children, the idea of career success, whatever it is. True worshipers will worship spirit and in truth. Let's just pray tonight. Lord, we ask you right now to show us those things and those people, those attachments that we've been holding on to. idols that have become unhealth. She would show us the blind areas in our lives with gentleness, Lord, that you would help us to see before you have to treat us like Peter you would speak your truth into honest hearts. I just want you to take a moment. Just examine your heart. It's really examine your heart. Ask the Lord show you to show you anything that has become an idol. Any relationship, any anything at all. Holy Spirit, speak to us. We want to be lovers of the truth. Father, we praise you. Praise you, Lord. Show us where our heart is. 
Father, we ask you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we might know Christ better. We need your power. We need your wisdom. We need your Help us to let go of things that have been controlling our lives. Just picture yourself placing those idols in the hands of Jesus. Just tell him, I'm sorry making this bigger than you in my life. Might be your image, your need to look a certain way to others. begin to thank him for freedom and change. Often, change begins simply by the opening of our eyes. And then it's, we grow in it little by little as we recognize it working every time it tries to operate in us. And we discern each time how to say no to that idol. To recommit to doing things God's way. We praise you, Lord. Soften us, Lord. Help us see it more clearly.
really feel like this is an evening where the Lord wants to just continue to speak into what we've been talking about. And I just was consulting with Tom and Wesley just about a direction, and I feel like I'm not supposed to prophesy over people tonight. Um, since most of us are from the congregation, I'm just going to save that for Sunday. I just really want to send us home reflecting. I just really challenge you to, you know, do some examination. Take some time and let this word provoke you to look deeper how you think, how you speak, how you act, what the idols are. And if if you feel like you're clean and you're, you're done, then let's move into thanksgiving and praise the Lord. But I just have this sense that the kind of the holy presence of God is, is resting on us and that it would be <coughs> missing the point to move into focusing on speaking individual words to people right now. And I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, God seems to be after something. For those of you who don't realize, I don't come with notes. I come and just speak to the the room as I feel and listen and to where he's led us tonight. So, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to grow 
in honesty before you for the opportunity to see ourselves more clearly so that we can grow in intimacy with you as these obstacles and idols are removed from our hearts. Give us dreams tonight. Show us scriptures as we read your word. Anoint our conversations between husbands and wives that we would not be afraid of truth tonight, but that we would move into 